Well, I have a question for you. Have you ever had a can of soda explode when you open it? If you grew up with siblings at one point or another, one of them probably grabbed your can of soda behind your back and shook it up when you weren't looking, and it exploded all over you. I have three older siblings, and so this happened on multiple occasions to me. And there's one infamous story in our house about one time when my parents weren't home, my two older brothers got a bottle of big red soda, and they were shaking it up for some reason, and they opened it in the kitchen, and it exploded all over. And if you've never heard of big red soda, it's called that for a reason. It's red, it's syrupy, and it stains things pretty well. Well, they tried to clean the stain off of the ceiling, but there were some remnants left over. And when my mom got home, she noticed. And after further questioning, she figured out what had happened. I had no part in this. I was the well-behaved child. <laughs> Stop laughing, mom. <laughs> OK, I was just better at hiding my messes. Well, the soda exploded because of a chemical reaction with the carbonation, caused the pressure to build up, and when you open it, it ex exploded. Or maybe you've seen those videos of people when they put a Mentos into a Diet Coke bottle, and the chemical reaction causes the soda to just instantaneously erupt. My favorite part of those videos is how surprised everyone seems that it actually happened, like they didn't believe that it was going to explode. But it's a real thing. If you mess with soda, it's going to overflow everywhere. Well, in our text today, we're going to see how when we receive God's grace, it should also overflow out of us. And the reason is that you have, if you have trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you have been changed. You are not the same anymore. You have received his grace. Your can has been shaken. The Mentos has been dropped in. His grace, by nature, is so abundant that it must overflow out of us. But if God's grace isn't flowing out of us, then something is wrong. Either we've never actually received his grace in the first place, or we've put the cap back on the bottle and we're keeping it all inside. And the question that might be worth asking ourselves is, how has God's grace changed the way that I live my life? How has the grace that I have received affected the people around me? How does my life look any different from those who haven't received God's grace, if at all? These can be hard questions to ask ourselves, but they're important for gauging where our loves truly lie. And we know that good trees produce good fruit, bad trees produce bad fruit, but I think if we're honest, a lot of times it feels like we're just producing no fruit. God's grace does not result in inaction. His love for us moves us to show love to others. And our text is going to show us how to love others through generous giving. So let's look together at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 15, which you can find printed in your worship guide. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor 
of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this manner I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your abundance of grace that you have given us. And we pray that you would help us this morning by giving us understanding of your word. May we receive it in faith and with open hearts. We pray that you would use it to shape us and change us, even now as we hear from you. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. We've been going through the book of 2 Corinthians for the last seven weeks, and now we're now entering into a new section in the book. Just to give a little bit of a recap, Paul planted the church in Corinth, and after spending some time there, he moved on in his travels, and it was while he was away from them that he started to hear about some troubling things going on there, like division, abuse of the sacraments, confusion about the resurrection, among other issues. So Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to address these issues, and he then went to Corinth for what's known as the painful visit, and afterwards he sent them another letter known as the tearful letter, which we don't have a copy of, but in which he was calling them to repentance. And by God's grace, they did indeed repent. And we heard about that last week, what true repentance looks like. Well, Paul then wrote to them this letter, 2 Corinthians, in order to reestablish his ministry with them after so much tension and hurt feelings that were probably going both ways. These first seven chapters of the book have worked toward that goal by Paul explaining and defending his ministry to them. And now that he's done so, he's able to shift into a bit more of an exhortation. He's explained the legitimacy of his ministry, and now he can go back to teaching them more directly on the Christian life. And what he wants to talk to them about is the Jerusalem collection. If you're not familiar with what that is, it's mentioned several times in Scripture, especially by Paul, uh, who's gathering a collection for the church in Jerusalem, which is going through persecution, famine, extreme poverty. And Paul had actually written to the Corinthians about this collection at least once before, and they responded generously by starting to gather this collection. But they hadn't finished it yet. So Paul here in chapter 8 and going on through chapter 9, he's encouraging them 
to finish that collection. And although this text was written by Paul to the Corinthians about this Jerusalem collection, uh, the text applies just as much to us today as it did to the Corinthian church back then. And what we're going to see in this passage is that because of the abundance of God's grace, grace should then pour out of us abundantly. We're going to see three ways in which God's grace does that. God's grace should cause us to give joyfully, to imitate Christ's sacrificial love, and to share according to what we've been given. So first, because of the abundance of God's grace, we should give joyfully. Look with me at verse 1. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now specifically, Paul is talking about here the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And these were poor churches in comparison to the church in Corinth, which is one of the more wealthy churches. So when Paul starts talking about the grace that was given to these poor churches, you might expect him to be leading to some way in which God has reversed their fate. What is this grace that these churches have received? Has God taken these poor churches and suddenly made them wealthy? Well, in verse 2, we see that in severe affliction and extreme poverty, these poor churches in Macedonia experience an abundance of joy. The grace that these churches received wasn't wealth in the way that we normally think about it. Paul says that their wealth was actually in their generosity. And continuing on, we see how the Macedonian churches gave generously to this Jerusalem collection. Paul describes their generosity by saying that they gave according to their means and beyond. And these are the poor churches. You might think these are the churches who should be receiving financial aid from others. But instead, they're the ones who are giving beyond their means for the good of others. And they're giving of their own accord. No one was making them do this. On the contrary, in verse 4, we see these poor churches actually begged Paul to contribute in this collection. And the implication there is that they had to beg to be included. That they were perhaps even encouraged not to give. I mean, imagine one of your friends telling you that they were going to sell their home, sell their cars, and take all the money and give it to the churches in Ukraine. Worthy and noble cause, but I think probably all of us would say something like, just pump the brakes a little bit. Maybe just give what you can afford. It's an extreme action. But that wasn't enough for the Macedonians. They gave according to their means and beyond. And Paul actually says that they gave themselves to the Lord and to serving his apostles' ministry. There was nothing that they were holding back. They didn't keep anything in reserve for themselves. In verse 6, Paul kind of shifts from talking about the generosity of these Macedonian churches to directly addressing his audience in Corinth. And what he tells them through the encouragement of Titus is basically to finish what they started. His purpose in talking about these churches in Macedonia is to encourage the church in Corinth to complete their giving in a similar manner. And he continues with more encouragement. He acknowledges the ways in which the Corinthian church has already been experiencing the riches of God's grace in faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, and love. Despite the fact 
that the Corinthian church was messy, it was still the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And where the Holy Spirit is, God is active. And he's encouraging the church to now pursue the grace of giving, along with all these other ways that they've been blessed. And the way that Paul is motivating the Corinthians is kind of the difference between criticism and encouragement. He could very well be like the bitter parent who says, why can't you be more like your brother? He could say, why can't you be more like the Macedonians? Look how much you have compared to them. You have so much more to give. Well, if all Paul wanted was their money, then maybe he would have taken that approach. But money is only part of the issue here. Primarily, he's concerned about their hearts. What he wants for them to experience is God's grace through the generosity of giving to brothers and sisters in need. Giving is a natural response by those who have received God's grace. As Jesus said in Matthew 10, freely you have received, freely give. So how do your giving habits reflect the grace that has been given to you? You might feel like you don't have much to give in the way of money, but I kept coming back to verse two in this section. Paul says there, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. If you want to put that in terms of a mathematical equation, what he's saying is joy plus poverty equals generosity. It doesn't make sense according to the world standards. But when the source of our joy is God's grace, we are enabled to do things that surprise the world. What is unnatural for the world is natural for those who have received the grace of salvation through Jesus Christ. If you've been holding back from giving because you feel like you don't have anything to spare, it might not be that you don't have enough money to give. It might be that you don't have enough joy to give. But if you want to experience that joy, you can find it in Christ. It's through Christ that we've been reconciled to the Father. So run to him. He loves you, and he wants to be near to you. And he doesn't hold back his love. He is generous even when we are not. Well, giving joyfully, that's not the only way that God's grace should pour out of us. But because God has given us so much, we should also imitate Christ's sacrificial love. Look at verse 8. Paul's driving home the point that the Corinthians are not obligated to give. He's not commanding them to contribute to the offering. Rather, he's expecting them to affirm their love through a willful giving, not out of compulsion. This is the type of giving that's motivated by genuine love. And their motivation in giving actually matters to Paul. And here is where he starts getting at the heart of their motives. Verse 9 is worth reading again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The grace of the Lord Jesus provides the pattern of giving. It's a pattern of sacrifice. Christ's riches were infinite. If anyone had ever been able to give without feeling it, it would have been Christ, but he gave until it hurt. 
When Paul's talking about Christ's poverty, he's not just talking about material poverty. Christ was not a wealthy man here on earth, but what he's getting at here is that Christ became poor by merely becoming human. That the holy God and creator of the universe should stoop so low to as assume a human body, experiencing human things like pain, hunger, sickness, being cold, needing sleep, listening to his parents, sharing with siblings, learning from teachers, so on and so forth. That he would experience these meager things. That is the kind of poverty that Paul is getting at. And not only that, but he subjected himself to a humiliating and horrible death. A death that we deserve. The fact that he would do any of this is mind-blowing. It doesn't make sense. Unless he was motivated by an incredible love for his children. And he didn't just subject himself to all these things just to give us a good example to follow, though we should follow his example. He did it for our good. He became poor so that we might become rich. Have you ever considered that? Have you ever considered the fact that if you have trusted in Christ, you have eternal wealth far beyond anything this world has to offer? And this gift has been purchased for you at great cost. Christ became poor in order to give this massive gift to you. His love was made manifest by the way that he gave himself to his children. Corey ten Boom was a Dutch watchmaker who lived in the Netherlands when the Nazis invaded in 1940. And rather than fleeing the invasion like many others, uh, Corey and her family decided to stay and help their community in whatever way that they could. And they didn't have much to give in the way of money, but what they had was an abundance of love. If you've ever read Corey's book, The Hiding Place, you know that her and her family sacrificed greatly during World War II. Many of their neighbors fled. Some of them even cooperated with the Nazis. But Corey and her family decided to do something incredibly dangerous, and that was to try to keep Jewish people safe. They built a secret room in their shop where Jews could hide. And they constantly took huge risks, like getting them food and fake IDs, taking in all these refugees that they had never even met before. Corey and her family chose to live a life of constant danger. And why did they do it? They were motivated by the love of Christ. They loved these poor, vulnerable people who had nothing to give them in return. And their love wasn't just some abstract feeling. Their love was lived out in the way that they put their lives on the line for others. And they would pay the price. Eventually, they were betrayed by a fellow Dutch citizen, and the Nazis came for them. And they would then spend years in concentration camps, but not before saving the lives of hundreds of Jewish people. These were people who imitated Christ's sacrificial love, even in the most difficult situations, and even though their resources were limited. Christ has set the pattern for what love looks like. And there are going to be times when love requires sacrifice. And Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church to take part in that kind of sacrificial love. And it's not just for the good of the church in Jerusalem. In verse 10, he said that their giving benefits them too as the givers. 
could it be that there is something to gain in sacrifice? Could it be that participating in the kind of sacrificial love that we've been called to is a part of our sanctification and our unity as the body? Well, what does Jesus have to say about sacrificial love? In Luke 6, he says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If we're being honest, there are some people in our lives who are easier to love than others. And we tend to be more willing to sacrifice for people who we think that we can get something back from. But that's not true sacrifice. That's exactly the type of transactional love that Jesus was teaching against in Luke. True love, Christ's love, is love that doesn't expect to get anything back in return. That's the type of love that the church in Corinth showed by desiring to partake in this collection. And it's the type of love that Paul encourages them to continue to pursue by completing the offering. It's the type of love that led Jesus to sacrifice everything for the salvation of those who would trust in him. And it's the type of love that we've been enabled to love others with. Love that sacrifices. Well, the abundance of God's grace should move us to give joyfully and to imitate Christ's sacrificial love. And it should also move us to share according to what we've been given. Verse 12 says that if the readiness for giving is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not what he doesn't have. And this is a principle that Jesus taught in Mark 12. If you remember the story of the poor widow with the two copper coins that she gave to the temple when she had nothing else to give. And there were also rich people there who gave much more than her, but Jesus said, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And this is the exact same principle that Paul is getting at here. He's basically saying, it's the thought that counts. Again, he's driving home the importance of their motives, even more than the amount of what's given. It's the willingness to give that is pleasing to God, even if the gift is small compared to what others are giving. And remember, the church in Corinth was one of the wealthier communities in the early church. Paul goes on in verse 13 and 14 to tell them that he's not expecting them to do all the giving just because they're wealthy. He wants everyone to be giving joyfully and abundantly, but according to what they have. It just so happens that the Corinthians have much, and as a matter of fairness, that they might provide for those in need. In turn, those who receive from the Corinthians are expected to reciprocate. Not out of obligation, not to pay them back like a loan, but to give out of the same kind of love, according to what they have. Verse 15, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is a quote from Exodus 16 in reference to the people gathering manna in the wilderness. And the people were commanded to gather only as much manna as they needed. Anyone who tried to hoard the manna would find the leftovers spoiled by the next day. No one needed to hoard. No one needed to worry about whether there would be enough food because God promised to provide for them. And Paul is taking this concept and applying it to the modern church. 
Just as God had provided manna to his people in the wilderness, so the church is now to supply each other in all their needs as they are able. Well, have you ever gotten a gift from a child? Maybe on Christmas or your birthday, you've gotten something handcrafted that didn't cost them anything. But who here has ever been upset that they didn't spend more money on you and get you something bigger and better? No, it's precious to see children give according to their means. The willingness and eagerness in them to give what they are able means so much more than some expensive gift that might have been given out of obligation. And you, in turn, might have gotten the kid a much more expensive gift according to your means. But there's no inequity there. It's not equal, but there's no inequity when you're giving according to your means. And the same principle applies to us. We are expected to show our love for each other in the way that we share our resources with each other, according to our means. You might be tempted to think about this in a way that lets you off the hook, though. They have so much more money than us, so we don't have to give as much as them. Maybe that's true. But if you find yourself wondering how much you have to give, then you're missing the point of this text. This passage is about how much you have to give. When God's people were wandering in the wilderness, he provided for them by raining manna down from heaven. And the way that God provides for his people now is through the body of Christ. Fellow believers sharing, sharing each other's burdens and giving in their abundance. And if you feel like you don't have any abundance to share with anyone, I would suggest two problems with that kind of thinking. First, remember the Macedonians. Remember the poor widow who gave in the midst of their extreme poverty. No matter how little you might feel like you have to offer, it's the joyful heart that gives according to their means. And second, if you feel like you don't have anything to share with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're believing a lie. You have been given gifts from God for the good of others. First Peter 4 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. And Romans 12, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. It might not be material gifts that you have to share with others, but scripture is clear that if you have received the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ, you have been given gifts that are meant to be shared for the building up of the body and the glory of God. Well, if any of you missed our service last Sunday, I would encourage you to go online and watch it. If not the whole thing, at least watch Ashley Posma's testimony. I know many of us were impacted by it. It's been on my mind throughout the week. And one of the things that she shared about was, as a kid, her and her mom sitting in their trailer, out of money, down to their last meal, knowing that they were just going to have to trust God to provide. And what happened? A bag of groceries showed up on their doorstep, along with $400 cash. It wasn't manna from heaven, but it might as well have been. Someone put that bag there. Because of the abundance of God's grace, we have been enabled to be that person. 
the means by which God has designed to provide for his people's needs is through the hands and feet of the church. Those of us who have received his grace. Jesus said in Matthew 25 that when he comes again in judgment, he will say to his sheep, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And his sheep will say to him, when did we do these things for you? And Jesus will respond, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Christ identifies with his people. Their sufferings are his sufferings. Compassion shown to them is compassion shown to him. The word is clear. Love for God does not result in inaction. God's love for us is not inactive. It resulted in him sending his son to pay the horrible price for our sin that we deserved. Jesus gave the ultimate sacrifice because of his love for his children. And if you have trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, then that is kind of the love that you are loved with. The Jesus Storybook calls it his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. His love must pour out of us. He has lavished his grace on us so abundantly that it must result in our giving joyfully, in our imitation of Christ's sacrificial love, and our sharing according to what we've been given.